This is Guns and Butter. Russia and China are interested in the diplomatic peaceful solutions, but for the first time, Russia carries this very big stick, and this big stick is conventional one. This is absolutely new paradigm for the United States, but it is the military power which dictates to the logic of the events. It's the basically coercion to get at the, the negotiating table and discuss things in basically peaceful manner. The main task today is not to allow any kind of war to break out. And that means also within the United States controlling of the neoconservative uh, element, which is extremely dangerous. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andrei Martyanov. Today's show, Crisis in the Ukraine. Andrei Martyanov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as the laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. Andre Marchinov, welcome. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Just to begin with a quick overview of the ongoing dust-up between the U.S., Ukraine, and the Russian Federation, for those who have not followed it, in March, Ukraine deployed military forces to the border of the Donbass and the Lugansk regions in the east. Then in April, powerful Russian forces were deployed to the Black Sea and Crimea. The U.S. administration dispatched two naval destroyers to the Black Sea, only to then cancel their deployment. Joe Biden called Russian President Vladimir Putin a killer and laid sanctions on Russia for the military buildup, election interference, bounties on Afghan soldiers, and the solar winds hack. President Putin then responded in kind and banned a number of top Biden officials, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Domestic Policy Advisor Susan Rice, and FBI Chief Christopher Wray. Joe Biden then requested a summit meeting with Putin, and Putin put him off. What is your assessment of all of this? In your opinion, do you think that the U.S. NATO was behind the Ukrainian military deployment in the East in order to draw the Russians into conflict? Absolutely. The issue here, however, is to what degree. What has to be understood that, um, and this is not uh, just a Russian point of view, any serious observer or analyst who really operates on the facts 
not on the narratives, will know that uh, Ukraine as the state in the uh, end of the 20th century, upon the collapse of the Soviet Union, and especially in the 21st century, has been created as the anti-Russia. That's their fundamental national idea. How it develops itself from there, it's a totally different story, but uh, obviously at this stage, Ukraine is not a subject of the international relations. It is essentially the nation which is uh, controlled externally, and uh, Biden's family actually has a lot of involvement with that. And um, 2014, what was called the Maidan Revolution, basically was the U.S. and EU inspired. And uh, it's not even the uh, matter of interpretations, it's basically a cold hard fact. So uh, the conflagration, which is happening right now, although I think so, we're not going anywhere near the war in this situation, was to a large degree inspired by the United States, which uh, also writes the very strong anti-Russian sentiment in Ukraine itself. So, and Russians absolutely know what is going on, and they know how to react. And uh, in this case, you saw the basically massive and really fast, that's the whole uh, thing about it, uh, mobilization of Russian resources towards the, and deployment towards the uh, border with Ukraine, and, uh, you know, enforcing their military grouping, including the Black Sea Fleet in the Crimea. So that was a Russian reaction to any kind of attempts on uh, what is called Donbass region, which uh, includes two uh, self-proclaimed uh, republics of the Donetsk and Lugansk. And it couldn't have been any other way. For anybody who saw what Russia did in 2014 by returning Crimea back home, so it was clear where it was all going. And it was really not far-sighted to expect any other outcome and any other reaction from Russia. Russia obviously doesn't want war, although Russia definitely can easily defeat a Ukrainian army. In fact, Russia is totally capable of basically disassembling present uh, uh, Ukrainian statehood, but Russia doesn't want to do it, because Russia doesn't want to get Ukraine on its, so to speak, balance. Nobody wants Ukraine in Russia anymore. And uh, in this case, it's all about Donbass and safety of, frankly, Russian borders. But that's about it. The United States tried to uh, get Russia in some form and try to make Russia spend her resources on Ukraine. But didn't work out this way. But Russia is in the position, if, you know, um, situation really deteriorates, uh, to take uh, Ukraine basically apart. You write that a huge miscalculation was made in 2014 and ever since because U.S. neocons and Russophobes believed that Russia's revival was tied to the Ukraine reintegrating into Russia, but yeah. that the real situation was exactly the opposite. How do you believe Russia views the Ukraine? Oh, as a burden. Uh, Russia views Ukraine only in geopolitical terms. No state, including the United States, obviously, will tolerate the uh, fact that it has the uh, state bordering it 
which is unstable, crazy, and actually becoming the economic basket case. That's the only uh, consideration Russia has now for Ukraine. Economically, Russia doesn't need Ukraine, and in fact, for the last seven years, you look attentively how the Russian-Ukrainian relation proceeded, uh, Russia did everything and even more to decouple itself from Ukrainian economy. What is your assessment of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky? Oh, uh, you know, uh, he's a comedian, and he is uh, basically a puppet. He's still a dangerous puppet. He could be a dangerous puppet in the end. Uh, you know, he is the guy who gives orders, but he is by no means autonomous figure. But the man with the background in being a clown and a comedian, make your own conclusions <laughs> what kind of a politician he is. And he will be completely compelled by the circumstances and interest groups, many of them very aggressive, some of them with uber-nationalistic and even neo-Nazi uh, traits, he will be doing their bidding in the end, including, of course, the EU and the United States. So he is basically a puppet, but the puppet which can still give the order and unleash the very serious war and dismantling of the Ukrainian state. What about the new Russian weapons and tactics announced by Putin? What are they? Um, I wrote a book, the whole thing, so to speak, about it. It's called uh, A Real Revolution in Military Affairs. Russia today uh, possesses the most advanced uh, standoff capability in the world. And I mean most advanced. And uh, if you look at the ranges and velocities of Russian uh, uh, cruise missiles, there's nothing even comparable uh, in the world. Plus, Russia possesses an incredible ability to uh, provide targeting for them, be that in the Eurasian continent or even in the Pacific or Atlantic Oceans, not to speak of the United States proper. So, in this respect, uh, Russia basically crossed into their warfare on the new physical principles, and the uh, United States uh, military, at least many people there, they know what is going on, they understand the implications and ramifications of those weapons, because most of them are simply uh, unintersceptable by the existing military capabilities of the United States or NATO as a whole. There is nothing there which can intercept any hypersonic missile and intercept or fight off the massive attack by uh, supersonic missiles, be them uh, anti-shipping missiles or missiles such like uh, as the uh, ballistic missiles, uh, tactical operational ballistic missiles such as Iskander. So basically any enemy which goes uh, against Russia today, including NATO, you can read their uh, basically report by one of the big air war honchos in the Rand Corporation, David Ochmanek, who basically was pretty straightforward uh, a couple of years ago after the war gaming was performed, and he basically admitted that we have our ass handed to us. And uh, Russia did change the warfare completely. And as you saw yourself, uh, especially after retaliation by Iran on the American uh, bases, uh, there is nothing there which can intercept modern uh, ballistic missile or uh, cruise missile.
in the Western arsenal, and it's not going to appear anytime soon. And you're saying that the U.S. knows this? Yes, United States, you have to understand, even the, the World War II, United States Army or United States Armed Forces never fought the war where it's rare in strategic depth or operational depth. And these are, we're talking about hundreds, hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers, could be under a relentless, continuous fire impact. That means the disarray and destruction of the command and control and communication system, C3. United States never fought a war like that in its history, including World War II. But that's what is expected when uh, NATO, as they plan, obviously, it doesn't mean that they will do it, uh, would engage in, in a real conventional war with Russia, which evidently, uh, well, inevitably will lead to the uh, uh, escalation towards the nuclear threshold, because United States is the nuclear-biased nation, precisely because the amount, the losses, which would be expected. And you don't have to take it from me. You can uh, read uh, uh, estimates by none other than uh, Colonel, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who was at some point of time on the short list for the National Security Advisor for Trump administration. He never got the position. He was sent as the ambassador to Germany. But uh, United States will be looking, or NATO unified force, uh, we'll be looking uh, at number of thousands of deaths, you know, in the first day of the war. The United States never faced anything like this in its history, including in the World War II. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, Crisis in the Ukraine. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that, quote, the U.S. is nuclear biased and will initiate nuclear exchange. Is this because U.S. conventional forces can't cut it in a real war against Absolutely. Russian conventional forces? This is what you've been talking about, right? Yes. My whole writing activity, my whole, so to speak, not narrative, but uh, idea and uh, effort in the last quite few years, let's put it this way, decade at least, was warning about the fact that the United States might initiate conventional war. As you remember, Obama was claiming that it was the finest fighting force in history. Of course, Romans and Wehrmacht and, you know, Red Army can have say on that, but the uh, point is that the danger was that political elite in the United States, which is extremely illiterate, in military terms, may initiate at some point of time the uh, conventional clash. And when faced with the realities of the conventional war with the first-rate military power, which Russia is, and Russia was for a long time, it will inevitably be forced to react uh, to the defeats and losses and the scale of losses by escalating towards the nuclear threshold. Uh, this is not a new idea. You have to understand, even in early 70s, a truly outstanding American admiral, at that time he was chief of naval operations, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, he was asking himself a question, early 70s, 
what would happen if United States loses even a single nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. That would create a political uh, crisis of unimaginable proportions. And it will lead to the escalation towards the nuclear threshold, because it is a highly valued uh, uh, target, and the loss of it is basically inconceivable, because it will have also psychological impact we, we can only speculate about. So, United States today, it doesn't have means to respond conventionally. Did the U.S. deploy weapons to Ukraine? Uh, um, there were some uh, transfers, like javelins and Titan uh, missiles. There were some transfers of other weapons, probably some uh, means of electronics. There are definitely uh, advisors there, be them in their like freelance shape or maybe uh, cadre American officers. But that's about it, I would say. You know, the, obviously the uh, NATO and U.S. assets uh, help Ukraine in terms of, of providing the intelligence. But I don't think so. There was any serious transfer of weapons uh, to Ukraine, except for the, what it's called enablers, not weapon systems themselves, but enablers. Uh, and the enablers are means of communications, some artillery, radar, things of this nature. Yeah, those did happen. In my recollection, the Russian Federation and President Vladimir Putin were always trying to appease the West and sought diplomacy and rapprochement all the while being repelled by the United States. Presently, Russian reconciliation talk seems to have ceased. You have written that, quote, Russia's departure from the West cannot be stopped anymore. Could you explain what you mean by Russia's departure from the West? Yes. It's, uh, in a larger sense, geopolitical departure. It is cultural one. And it's economic one. Uh, Russia was um, under the sanctions pretty much non-stop all from modern history, since World War II, since the end of the World War II and the uh, Cold War, and Soviet Union, and then Russia, they were under sanctions non-stop. And uh, basically, what haven't been understood, when United States helped to unleash basically held in Ukraine in 2014, Russians already then had enough with that. Because the United States intruded into the not just sphere of interest, it intruded basically what constitutes the historic Russia. And uh, after that, it was pretty much uh, clear where Russia would be steering to. And uh, economically, if you look at the dynamics of economic activity between uh, Russia and EU, and EU used to be the main uh, trade partner for Russian Federation. You will see yourself that trade declined dramatically. In fact, precipitous decline. Uh, Russia basically got rid of most of the T-bills. So Russia basically got rid of all U.S. treasuries, and uh, Russia basically spearheading the de-dollarization of the international trade and started moving its main economic activity to uh, Asia, 
And uh, by now, culturally, basically, uh, there is no uh, common ground between uh, Russia and modern West, especially Western Europe. So basically all values which have been either sincerely upheld or pushed upon people of Western Europe, they just simply do not work in Russia. This is not how Russia lives. So in this case, uh, basically their split, apart from their constant military threat, uh, already have occurred. It's a fait accompli. And now we can just see accelerated, uh, you know, uh, turn of Russia away from the West and towards Asia. And basically, you know, playing more in the de facto uh, military political alliance with China. And that's pretty much says it all. Russia sees no possibility of negotiating anything with the West. And... Also, Russia is no longer that much interested in Europe, is it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Russian, Russians do not mind uh, selling its uh, both oil and gas, and Russia sells quite a bit of actually uh, mach- uh, machine-building products there. But uh, you can see it in the dynamics of the trade, mutual trade. And uh, the whole program of the import substitution, which was uh, um, launched in Russia in 2014, was basically nothing more than uh, uh, the program to provide Russia with what she would be able to buy in Europe, primarily. Russian-American uh, trade relations are basically pathetic. They are non-existent. They run somewhere around 9 to $8 billion a year. So it just... And the United States actually buys a lot of oil and gas from Russia. But that's about it. You also mentioned the uh, cultural differences between uh, the West and where the Russian Federation is headed. I watched some of the videos on your blog, and Mm -hmm. there was one of President Putin talking about uh, the Russian Federation culturally being a Christian nation. Is this one of the things you're referring to? This thing included, obviously. Uh, Russia, first, Russia basically, uh, especially recently, created what will be anathema in modern West, be that United States or Europe. Russians identified themselves as a nation, and they put it into their uh, new constitution. You will not find the definition of a nation, and especially its language, anywhere in any any Western country nowadays. They are multicultural. Russians are multicultural, but they admit and uh, underscore the presence of what is called the state-founding people, and those are Russians. Not Russians as the Russian citizens. This is the nationality, how it is perceived in the West. Russia doesn't perceive nationality as merely being a citizen. Russia consists of 80-plus percent of ethnic Russians and other nationalities. For example, when you talk to, let's say, Tatar, who is a Russian citizen, you can basically identify this person that this he or she is both Russian citizen 
and patterned by nationality. This concept is gone from the West, which is increasingly multicultural and increasingly basically postmodernist in its outlook on how countries and nations operate. Russia is not like that. And that's, by the way, how uh, Mr. Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, actually is staying in power, because Hungarians recognize themselves as Hungarian nation, first and foremost, and Europeans and whatever political affiliation, second. This is not the case anymore in the United States. This is largely not the case anymore in the Western Europe, especially UK, or France, for that matter. So that's the gigantic cultural split. And then, of course, we are going into the issue of the uh, genders. And um, here is where it all becomes absolutely unacceptable for Russians. Because Russian definition of the family and gender is also emblazoned in the Constitution and in the law on the family. So this is not the point where Russia and West come together, modern West anyway. And what about language then? Is the Russian language part of the Russian Constitution? Yes, Russian language is stated to be the language of the country, the language of the founding people. It doesn't mean that other languages are not used. Absolutely. National republics, they are more than welcome to use their languages if they want to. Tatars do some, uh, you know, things on the local level, or Bashkirs, or Chechens, or whoever, in their own republic, in their own enclaves, they, where they live, there could be either oblast district, or they could be the republics. They have, if people want to do their, some bureaucratic procedures, or want to study it in their own language, God bless, you know. So, but the language of the federal level, the language on which everybody speaks in, uh, in Russian Federation is Russian. It's the language of the state. How solid, in your opinion, is the alliance between Russia, China, and Iran? Uh, not really solid especially regarding Iran, although Iran signed a huge uh, investment agreement uh, with China recently. But there's a bigger factor here. Uh, Russia and China are neighbors. You just cannot, you know, you cannot move yourself away from China. And China cannot move herself away from Russia. So the issue of the continental neighborhood plays a huge role here. Because China wants to live well, it wants to continue to develop uh, economically, and she cannot do this with Russia being hostile. So China will have to have Russia on her side. And considering Russian uh, military technological development and the fact that Russia can provide their energy supply to China, which is crucial, especially in case United States and China do clash, with U.S. Navy being able to cut the uh, shipping lanes of communications to China through Indian Ocean. And this is where the huge chunk of uh, carbohydrates go to China from Iran, Saudis. So guess what? It is Russian pipe uh, network and uh, supplies which will make sure the China economy doesn't cease if the United States goes there, you know, head to head openly against China especially in the case of the real 
God forbid, of course, but that's how you calculate your uh, contingencies in case of the real military conflict. So, and there you go. In this case, it's even more than, you know, while there is no formal alliance, there is definitely good neighbor relations. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, Crisis in the Ukraine. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The United States has gone to DEFCON 3, or Yellow Alert, for the first time since September 11, 2001. How significant is this? Well, you know, here's the issue. You cannot take anything anymore which comes out of the United States. Uh, not serious. I cannot say that, no. People take United States very seriously. But they take United States seriously not anymore because of its uh, United States power. In fact, it's the other way around. The country is so dysfunctional and so ungovernable anymore that anything United States does you have to calculate suddenly instead of two, three contingencies, you have to calculate million of them just to know who does what and who orders who. And indeed, you begin to expect any kind of most bizarre things. And guess what? They were coming in droves as of late for the last uh, three, four years for sure. So is it significant? Probably it is significant. But you saw yourself recently uh, United States slapped sanctions on Russia at the same time the President of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, wants to predictable and stable relations. And nobody knows, the left hand in the United States doesn't know anymore what the right one does. And Russians know that, Chinese know that, but uh, evidently the United States doesn't. You refer to Russia and China in what you term, quote, a coercion to peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, a coercion to peace mode relative to the United States. What do you mean by a coercion to peace? That is to say, how dangerous do you think the United States is? Um, United States is dangerous in the sense that uh, American elites, for the most part, uh, are extremely illiterate in terms of their warfare. Many of them, they do not even understand what it might bring, including to the U.S. proper. Coercion to peace is the term which was coined in 2008 when Georgia, not American state, but uh, United States lapdog in Black Sea, former Republic of the Soviet Union, attacked Russian peacekeepers, and Russia had to react, and that's the, the operation of the Russian armed forces, which disposed of uh, Georgian army in the mere 120 hours. It was called coercion to peace. Russia could have gone to Tbilisi, do the regime change there, and just turn uh, Georgia into, yet again, Russian province if they wanted to. Russia didn't do it. Russia destroyed uh, Georgian army and stopped about I, I believe it was about 80 kilometers from the capital of Georgia, which was Tbilisi, turned around, went away, split Georgia from Abkhazia and uh, North Ossetia, and that was it. 
basically Russia stopped the war. Same is applied, but on a much, incomparably much uh, larger scale is to the United States. And it is all based, if I will, uh, I believe it was um, Dan Xiaoping of China who said, paraphrased famous Clausewitz, uh, Karl von Clausewitz's dictum that uh, the war is the continuation of policy by other means. He said, uh, Dan Xiaoping said that the diplomacy is the continuation of the war by other means. Russia and China are interested in the diplomatic peaceful solutions, but for the first time, Russia carries this very big stick, and this big, big stick is conventional one. This is absolutely new paradigm for the United States, but it is the military power which dictates today the logic of the events. And coercion to peace in this case is basically, if you want to call it, it's the benign blackmail. It's the basically coercion to get at the, the negotiating table and discuss things in a basically peaceful manner. And uh, there are only three guys in the world who can basically provide that kind of input. This is China, Russia, and the United States. What kind of uh, place at this negotiating table United States will take? Obviously, it's up to the United States. But the main task today is not to allow any kind of war to break out. And that means also within the United States, controlling of the neoconservative uh, element, which is extremely dangerous. You point out that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov confirmed that Russia is ready to discard Western pay systems, such as Visa and MasterCard, insulating Russia from other sanctions risks from the U.S. and E.U. Is the Russian Federation already able to disengage from the Western financial payment system and SWIFT? Yes. The uh, alternative system has been in place for quite a while. And uh, Russian Mir card is very widely accepted all over Russia. So not only Russia is doing this, but Russians obviously also working uh, on the independent internet. So yes, Russia is ready to disengage uh, from West in the most profound ways, including their financial. So it is a fact. And yes, that's what Lavrov was talking about. And then what about Russia decoupling from the dollar? What would that mean? Well, Russia already has uh, her uh, largest share of the uh, currency reserves are, to a large degree, are uh, euros. China also is beginning to, you know, prefer euros in the trade. So, and eventually, uh, Russia will make sure that majority of uh, trade transactions uh, are uh, done not in the U.S. dollar. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be some kind of, uh, you know, it's going to be euro, it's going to be some kind of other currency, it's going to be ruble, which is doing quite well, actually, One, uh, once you consider the fact that Russia is under sanctions non-stop, and that will be the decoupling. In fact, is already on the, I don't remember the name of the uh, exchange uh, in China, I'm not good with Chinese names, honestly. And uh, uh, the 
Already the oil was denominated in yuans, and it was traded in yuans. In fact, is the mutual uh, payments between uh, Russia and China are done both in rubles and yuans. And the share of those uh, transactions is growing. That's the decoupling. And indeed, consider this. If Russia uh, has the puny $9, $10 billion trade with the United States, why Russia needs dollars? Russia doesn't need dollars to pay for whatever services or goods it buys in the United States. But Russia certainly needs uh, own rubles and yuans when uh, she trades with China. And Russia and China, they have this uh, uh, agreement for the mutual use of their respective currencies. Well, does Russia have any trade with the U.S. currently? Well, it does. Uh, it's a very small trade for the economies the size of United States and Russia. It's around eight, nine, ten billion dollars a year. Uh, Russia, as strange as it may sound, is one of the major supplies of oil and gas for the United States. And Russia buys from the United States things of such nature as aircraft, commercial aircraft. Boeing is a big part of Russian air fleet, and uh, Russians still buy uh, planes such as uh, Boeing 777. But that's about it, I would say. For comparison, uh, Russian-Chinese trade is somewhere around $120, $125 billion annually. So the difference is startling. It's an order of magnitude. In 2014, when the Ukrainian coup took place, U.S. Mm -hmm. President Obama named his then-Vice President Joe Biden as key responsible for Ukraine and mm -hmm. Victoria Nuland in the State Department responsible for Eastern Europe. She ran the coup regime change for Washington. Today, Biden is president, and Newland is number three in the State Department. This doesn't bode very well for the future of Ukraine, does it? No, it doesn't. And as I stated uh, for many years, the main danger with these people is that they do not understand how military action can develop. They think that the war is just a you know child's play. But uh, it doesn't. I agree with you entirely here. It, these are not the people who, uh, even in the normal sense, would be called, a, called diplomats. They're not diplomats by any means. And they're basically conduits for the American narrative or demands. But again, American diplomacy as such, as an occupation and as uh, a profession, as a craft, as the state's craft, I cannot recall seeing any competent American diplomat in a long time, honestly. You indicate that behind all of the U.S. ruling class ignorance, miscalculation, and drive toward war is a systemic and irresolvable crisis of financial predatory capitalism. If the financial crisis is irresolvable, do you think that war is inevitable? 
Uh, it would be, but today we live in a little bit different world. It's obviously world of the nuclear weapons. So in this case, we will see, at least for a while, the proxy wars, as it was actually in 60s and 70s of the last century. But eventually, the crisis will reach such proportions that there is a danger that somebody, even now, I'm pretty sure there are many people out there who would want global confrontation. And they would think that they will be able to control it. They, they, they really live in illusion. They are delusional if they think that they can do it. But this is the idea in some circles in the United States. Well, if Russia, if the Russian Federation is pushed too far, they're ready to go to war, aren't they? Uh, Russia has, again, we need to understand that Russia uh, can be pushed too far only on the European theater of operations. Yes, Russia can go to war, but currently, we're basically going back to the square one when I was talking about the United States being the nuclear biased, uh, have nuclear bias, because currently NATO doesn't have forces to basically fight Russia in Europe, at least not in Russia's vicinity, without sustaining a massive casualties and probably military defeat. I'm speaking with military analyst and author Andrei Martinov. Today's show, Crisis in the Ukraine. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I think what some people are concerned with is the downfall of the U.S. empire sort of going off the rails. You're absolutely correct. I am afraid of this. And, uh, there is no universal uh, recipe or prescription for, uh, you know, how uh, empires or nations collapse. And I certainly lived through one, and I don't want to live through another one. In fact, it was the first collapse which uh, basically made uh, us leave uh, the ruin of the country we used to live in and move to the United States. And now seeing what is going on, while it's definitely not exactly Soviet uh, type of collapse, it is still, you can recognize the collapse. And the last thing we want is for the United States to implode completely and uh, basically create an absolute global mayhem while doing so. So that's the whole thing. Uh, there, uh, I think at this stage, uh, we crossed the point of no return. And the only thing we can talk about right now is uh, the lesser of few evils. The situation is bad already. Everybody can see that. Even the most uh, delusional people cannot deny anymore the uh, development of the situation in a very dangerous and unpleasant way, especially internally in the United States. But uh, we can only hope, you know, what can we say, you know, you mentioned your own personal history and moving to the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? 
uh, you were actually in the Russian Naval Forces, weren't you? Yes. Yes. Um, I graduated uh, Naval Academy. It was the class of 85. It's a five-year-long institution with extremely tough curriculum. And, uh, and after graduation um, and having the degree into basically uh, inertial uh, navigational complexes for the strategic missile systems, I, as many as my classmates, went to serve on the surface fleet. Basically, what would what is called today uh, is Coast Guard. I went to that at that time. They, were, they still are called border guards. So I went to serve on the surface uh, fleet there. So and in 1990, I was basically retired for the health reasons, and we went through the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it was an extremely painful and frankly terrifying experience. And uh, because we were originally from the city of Baku which is the capital of now independent republic of Azerbaijan. By the time we moved to Russia, we basically have been not needed. So when we had a chance, we moved to the United States. And obviously, uh, it seemed like a land of stability and peace at that time. Boy, I cannot even believe how much the country has changed since then, since mid-90s, once we moved, uh, when we moved to it. And... Uh, it is what it is. It's uh, really scary to be inside this uh, process of implosion. So, but we can only hope, as I already uh, said, that uh, it would be the lesser of many evils. So, you lived through at least part of the dissolution of the USSR, right? Well, I lived pretty much through all of it. <laughs> we already left at that time independent Russia. It was the uh, uh, early nineties. We decided to move to the United States in ninety three. So you have a perspective of uh, <laughs> the implosion of two empires, right? Yeah, that's the experience I would rather not deal with. But yeah, it looks like. We are within the second one. But obviously, it's very different from the Soviet Union. We have to understand that. You know, it's not, there are some parallels. There are some similarities, no doubt about it. But it's very unique, and, you know, it's the implosion in its own right. You write that an historic tectonic scale of change is taking place in the world where the West, whose remnants, which could still be identified as the West, is, quote, yet to earn its place at the negotiating table where the real rules-based world order will be set. Is the rest of the world leaving the West behind? Uh, it's not leaving it, but there is no doubt that the rest of the world is uh, highly aware of the West declining. So it's uh, not anymore supposition. It's a cold, hard fact of life. People are aware. Among many uh, geopolitical authors from the United States whom I could take semi-seriously, uh, Samuel Huntington, late Samuel Huntington, in his uh, seminal work, The Clash of Civilizations, mentioned that the West was in decline. It's just that nobody could foresee that it would decline that fast. And we can see it today. 
You have indicated that President Trump became the most anti-Russian POTUS in modern history. Why do you say that? Well, I believe there was, if my memory doesn't fail me, and again, I'm not saying that this is correct number, I believe he implemented 46 different types of sanctions on Russia. Yes, he did implement sanctions, and it was quite confusing because when he ran for election, he was very much against starting a war with Russia, and he wanted to do business with them, and so we all had the impression that he was pro-Russian. So it was a bit confusing with all those sanctions that the Trump administration was uh, implementing against Russia. And a lot of people thought, well, that it was some part of the U.S. state other than Trump that was doing it. How do you interpret that? Oh, very simple. Uh, uh, Trump was hunted from the get-go by uh, Democratic Party and uh, Democratic Party media which doesn't make him uh, uh, a victim, honestly. He didn't have guts to stand up to this, and uh, uh, the point is, he viewed uh, their international relations as a zero-sum game, or he thought that his skills as the New York uh, real estate shyster are applicable to the international relations. They are not. And then, of course, being constantly under pressure and this false, one false story after another of him being basically a Manchurian candidate uh, of Russia, just to defend himself, he started to promote and conduct the most anti-Russian policy in a long time. So, and in this respect, uh, both parties, apart from the fact that uh, Republican Party was, modern Republican Party is a very aggressively anti-Russian party. So the whole American establishment basically got from Trump what they wanted, and that was the anti-Russian policies. Quoting from your blog, you have written that modern targeting systems of Russia, such as Liana, which is already operational, are high-orbit satellite constellations which are safe from modern Western anti-satellite missiles, uh, not to mention other means of reconnaissance and targeting which are networked and well-protected. You go on to point out that Putin said that Russia could target U.S. decision-making centers. What did Putin mean by decision-making centers? Uh, well, obviously Pentagon <laughs> and uh, basically political structure in the United States proper. So obviously in Europe too. And we are not limited. Well, let's put it this way. Pentagon still has it, I believe, ground zero uh, hot dog eatery or something like that in the middle of the Pentagon. And uh, the reason it was called ground zero, because legend has it, Russians had like a couple of warheads basically targeted <laughs> towards this place. So Pentagon was first to go in case of real war. But truth is, today, the standoff weapons 
have such a precision and such devastating impact on a very local uh, level that this impact, especially when it's done against uh, the, indeed decision-maker uh, centers and control and command system, uh, could be done uh, basically by uh, conventional means. Obviously, if the war, God forbid, goes nuclear, you can do that in nuclear way, but uh, you can do the, uh, by conventional means, a lot of damage today. And you basically can uh, crush the decision-making system of any state, including the United States. And Russia has this capability. So then, do you view Russia and China and their military build-up as basically defensive rather than offensive? It was always defensive. It was always defensive. And, uh, but that is, that's a whole other separate topic, especially regarding the uh, Cold War, original Cold War, part of which I was. And uh, that requires a separate discussion. It's a very huge topic. No, Soviet Union wanted to be basically left alone. And uh, same goes for Russia today. Russia is not interested in fighting with anybody, attacking anyone, unless it happens, obviously, in the immediate vicinity of Russia, which threatens, indeed, Russian national interests. And uh, I always said, I always uh, continue to say it, and will, will continue to say it, that if you look at the American history, especially modern American history, starting from the World War II, even the World War I, no American soldier or officer ever fought defending his or her homeland. Simple as that. No American soldier, no American officer knows what it means to lose your family being killed, burned, raped, your home burned, or your family uh, and friends being taken as prisoners of war or slaves, United States has no this experience, including on the level of the armed forces. Russians, for 1,100 years, they fought with their backs to the wall and having their wives, children, relatives behind them. This is a fundamental difference. And I write about this nonstop. I wrote three books about it. That you have to understand, Leningrad alone, from 1941 through 1944, in three years, lost one and a half million people, most of them civilians, from the siege, Nazi siege. And this is more than all America's military uh, losses combined throughout the whole American history. People sometimes don't understand uh, that, uh, what are they talking about, and it takes them sometimes to get to Russia to understand how wars profoundly affected Russians. I've been enjoying your very creative blog. You have a great sense of humor in your writing. I've also been enjoying your rock and roll videos. You like rock and roll. Oh, of course. Listen, what people don't, as my generation, we are... I don't know how we uh, uh, could be termed, uh, I'm not a baby boomer, obviously Russians don't have kind of baby boomers thing, but I live in the United States for so long now. But no, when we grew up in 60s, being children in 60s, and then in 70s, and becoming teenagers, 
it's not an exaggeration to say that we grew up with the uh, basically Anglo-Saxon music, popular music, primarily Anglo-Saxon. And of course, uh, in Soviet Union, British pop and rock were gigantic. They were huge. So we grew up with a great music, okay? We grew up with truly creative, great uh, American and British uh, pop culture. Andre Marchinov, thank you so much. You are more than welcome. I've been speaking with Andrei Martyanov. Today's show has been Crisis in the Ukraine. Andrei Martyanov is an expert on Russian military and naval issues. He was born in Baku in the Soviet Union, graduated from the Kirov Naval Red Banner Academy, and served as an officer on the ships and staff position of the Soviet Coast Guard through 1990. He took part in the events in the Caucasus that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the mid-1990s, he moved to the United States, where he worked as a laboratory director in a commercial aerospace group. He is the author of Losing Military Supremacy, The Myopia of American Strategic Planning, The Real Revolution in Military Affairs, and his latest, Disintegration, Indicators of the Coming American Collapse. His books are available at ClarityPress.com. Visit his blog at SmoothieX12.blogspot.com. That's S-M-O-O-T-H-I-E, the letter X, the number 12.blogspot.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit snipers trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying?